Oh, it's great to be back with you again uh, and to be able to share uh, God's word with you. Uh, I know uh, uh, just we love everything that's happening here. Uh, and when we look over from Calderwood, it's, uh, it's very, very encouraging to see uh, just the number of people here and all the kids and everything. It's incredible. Um, and I know I think John uh, McKinnon is here next week. Uh, so you're going to be all Calderwood Baptist out by the end of that. Uh, if you have your Bibles, it would be brilliant if you could, uh, could turn to the book of Ephesians. Uh, and we're going to look in Ephesians chapter 3. Uh, and we're going to be focusing on uh, sort of verses 14 to 21 this morning. And it should be on the screen as well. Uh, so Paul writes this to the church in Ephesus. He says, For this reason uh, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. On Friday, uh, just I'm a school teacher, and on Friday, just after we had celebrated our own remembrance service, one of my fifth-year students asked me this question, and it was a genuine question. Uh, he said, why do we do remembrance? And he, he wasn't trying to waste time, and he, he wasn't being a pest. Um, it was a genuine question. And I told him, the reason we do remembrance is because you've just asked that question. Uh, because we remember because we have a tendency to forget. Uh, that's why we do it. Uh, so much now in our, I think, our modern age is we're always looking forward. We're always looking for the next thing. Uh, and in doing so, we often miss the lessons of the past or we forget the lessons of the past far too quickly. So as we've done this morning, we've... We remember courage and bravery and love for friends and country. We remember that there, there have been times uh, when standing and fighting was the right thing to do. And it's, you know, we can look at the stories and we can read the accounts and we can be encouraged uh, and inspired by acts of heroism and self-sacrifice and these are things that we, we should be seeking to, to copy uh, to emulate for Christians uh, we we have a we have a we're in a luxurious position almost where, where we get to look forward because we know what's coming for us we have a hope of heaven 
hope of glory, of eternity with Christ. Uh, but we also have the privilege of also being able to look back. Uh, we have the privilege to look back to see the saints of old, to see what people in the Bible did, what people throughout church history have done. And if we want to learn how to live lives of faith, if we want to learn how to, to pray, how to fight sin, if we want to know what it is to stand in the face of persecution and trial, then, then often we need to look back to find out, well, well how, did, how did they do it? At Calderwood, uh, we've been looking back. Uh, and in particular, we've been looking back at, at how people pray. Um, and particularly, we've been looking at how people in the Bible pray. Uh, because we've realised as a church that we have so much more to learn. Uh, and we have so many things we need to get better at when it comes to our, our prayer life. And we look at the, the prayers in the Bible and we look at the prayers... Uh, that the, you know, the great saints of old uh, prayed, and we have to think to ourselves, is, are my prayers anything like that? Is, is, that how, is that how I pray? And I think for, for us at Calderwood, and for, for me personally, this has been quite a chastening experience. You know, we, we compare our prayers with the prayers of Paul in the Bible and this prayer we're looking at this morning and our prayers at times seem so inadequate. We, we, we pray for so many, we pray for temporary things. We pray for rather trivial things from time to time whereas if you read Paul's prayers, they are, they are eternal in nature. They are about the inner workings of the heart. They're about transformation. Uh, so this morning as we, as we look back and as we look at how Paul prayed here, what we want to see in this prayer is a couple of things. Uh, Paul is praying for one thing with two objectives and one goal. Uh, the one thing he's praying for, we see in verse 16, he's praying for power. And then he's got two objectives. He wants power that Christ might dwell in their hearts through faith. This is the church in Ephesus, but I think we can clearly apply this to ourselves this morning. That's in verse 17. And his second objective is power to know the love of Christ in verse 18 and 19. And then his goal, that we would be filled with the fullness of Christ. And as Paul prays this, he's praying, I think, with immense confidence. I'm not sure how confident you are when you pray. Uh, you know, how confident are you that, that God's going to answer your prayers? Uh, how confident would you be if you were 100% certain God was going to say yes? If you knew you prayed something and you guaranteed God was definitely going to say yes. Well, when Paul prays this prayer, he is 100% sure that God is going to say yes. Because Paul's prayer, as we're going to see, is in line with God's will. That, that's how we pray prayers where we know God's going to say yes. Because if we pray for the things God says he's going to do, then God's going to say yes. And Paul begins this section in verse 14. He says, for this reason. And I, I, Paul is a very logical writer and everything's connected. So he says, for this reason, 
we have to think, well, for what reason? That forces us to go back in the text. So we rewind back to the start of chapter 3 and we find the exact same phrase, for this reason. So we have to rewind a little bit further and we're now back into chapters 1 and chapter 2. And the reason he's talking about is, is all the riches that we find described for us in chapter 1 and chapter 2 uh, of Ephesians. But if you follow his line of thinking, I think the, the crux comes at the very end of chapter 2 uh, in verses 19 to 22. Uh, and this is what Paul says. He says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles, prophets, and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. This is it. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are, be, are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. See, what Paul is saying is that it's God's will to build the church. And it's God's will to build the church uh, on the foundation of Christ, the apostles, and the prophet. And this church, he says, they're going to be a, a holy temple. That's us. We are to be a holy temple. We are to be a, a dwelling place for God. And the one thing that Paul is praying for here is the means. It's the, it's the power uh, for the known purpose of God to come to fruition in the lives of the Ephesians. And in our lives. And because he's praying in line with God's will, he's confident that God will answer yes. Now we know when we pray there are things God will say yes. He will say no. He might say not yet. Wait a while. Uh, but here this is a definite yes. And this power is what we need. That he's asking for because we, we can't do this ourselves. We, we can't become this dwelling place for God. We can't become a holy temple. I, I can't be holy on my own steam. I can't know the love of God just out of my own head uh, or intellect. We, we need this power. We need God's spirit in our lives enabling us to do this. So Paul is now approach, he approaches God. And look at how he approaches him. And we, we, we sung about this this morning already. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. How do we approach God? See, Paul approaches him here first and always as Father. God is the, is the archetype of all fathers. He is the perfect example of a loving father who is close to his children loving father who wants to give good things to his children who longs for his children to approach him not as if he's some kind of austere distant figure rather aloof no he, he wants us to come like children and say Abba daddy but not only is he is he father as he Abba but Paul also approaches him as we see as one who is abundantly able to meet all our needs 
So the power that he's asking for uh, is supplied out of, he says, out of the riches of his glory. And so, I mean, that means God's supply of power to us is inexhaustible. It's unlimited. And it's free. We don't have to earn it. We don't have to scrub up. It's free because it, it flows from his grace, which is glorious. He mentioned this in chapter 1, 7 and 8. The, to, the, to the praise of his glorious grace. So Paul's prayer is for us this morning. And he prays that we would be strengthened in our, in our inner self. He talks about this uh, quite a lot. He talks about this inner man. And it's a contrast with the, sort of the, the old self. It's the new self and the old self. My screen keeps going to sleep. It's not very clever. So what's Paul's first objective for us this morning? First thing he asks is that Christ might dwell in your heart through faith. And what does Paul mean by this? So he's praying to, to Christians. Uh, he knows these Christians are rooted and grounded in love. So surely Christ already dwells in their heart. Surely Christ is already in their heart. And the key word is that, it's that little word dwell. Uh, in, in the Greek, it's a, it's a really strong verb. Uh, and it means, a little, it means more than just move in. Uh, it, it means to settle, to become established, to take residence. Uh, this is the pro- if you've ever moved into a new house, this is the process. You, you move in and then you begin to dwell. You become established, you make your mark on it, you furnish it, you decorate it, you do some renovations, you stick on an extension, uh, you, know, you change the windows, whatever you need to do, or you maybe you're moving into a house you've had to do some repairs to and you've, it's no, it it's a now doesn't look anything like it did when you first started. That's what it is to dwell, or perhaps you already had a house and then you got married and your spouse moves in and suddenly alterations appear. Soft furnishings that weren't there before. Ornaments. In our house, I kind of thought we'd reached a level of little heart ornaments. I thought maybe two or three of these would be all right. Uh, They hang on almost every single door handle, cupboard handle, I'm surrounded by hearts. But that's what it is to dwell. It's to become established. Uh, And what this is all about is, this is about Christ coming into our hearts and dwelling there. And as he dwells, he transforms us. He reshapes us from the inside out into this dwelling place uh, for God by a spirit that we read about in chapter 2. And this is a process we would sometimes refer to as sanctification. It's a renovation process. It might even be a demolition process. It's renewal. Uh, God might be building extensions in your heart. More capacity to love, 
to care, to minister, to serve. But in all these things, he's creating a dwelling place for, him, for himself. And see, for in this life, this is a never-ending process. If only, you know, if, if only it was a simple press a button and bang, we're holy. Wouldn't that be good? You, know, you just wake up one morning and that's it. Done. Sanctification finished. No more wrestling. Sin. But it's, it's not like that. It's a never-ending process. That's why we, we need the power of the Spirit. And this is what Paul's praying for. Uh, we need that power so that Christ is established on the throne of our heart. That he is our only authority. With the power then to, to kill sin. And the power to, to fight for faith. And this process is going to look really different. Depending on who you are. It's, a, it's different for all of us. Depends where we started. But the truth is, each one of us has still got a serious amount of work to get done. Every single one of us. And that work will continue. And, and we need the power of the Spirit in us, enabling transformation, enabling renewal. Uh, it's a little bit like, uh, I know if some of you here have kids, and you've maybe redecorated and about half an hour after you've finished redecorating, you think, well, that was a fat waste of time as the crayon has gone up the side of the wall. And that's what it's like in our hearts. That's what it feels like for me sometimes. It's like God's come in and started the decorating process and then me and my stupidity has got the crayons out and just started trashing the place again. That's what we do. But God is patient and he works in us and he, he is enabling us and he... And he gives us power if we ask for it. Paul's second objection. Objective, sorry, not objection. And I love this one. He wants us to know the love of God. Verse 18 and 19. Power to know the love of God. That's what he says. He says that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of God that surpasses knowledge. We need to note, first of all, that this is a prayer. This is not a prayer for our love of God to increase. That's a good prayer. I think we'd all acknowledge that as a good prayer. No, this is a prayer for an increase in our knowledge of God's love for us. It's really different. Paul wants the church, he wants us to know and to experience the love of God. And what a love this is. You know, today, we've, we're reflecting on the sacrifice of many. I don't know if, you, if you've ever stood at a, a war memorial. Uh, you know, if you, especially, you go up to some of the highland villages. And you go and you stuck, stand at the war memorial. And you know that the village only has a population of about three or 400 people. And you read the war memorial and you look down through it and you think, that's, that's all, that's most of the men gone in the space of a few years. Just 
wiped out in an instant. Or I've never been, but I've friends who have who've stood at the war cemeteries in at the Somme or in Flanders, and you just look at as far as the eye can see, it's just cross, 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 set, all lined up in rows. And we look at that and, and, and we, we see love. There's sacrifice there. It seems overwhelming. But in comparison to the love of God, it peels into insignificance. What is it Paul says? What a love this is that the Son of God would die for me. See, that is love. That is the pinnacle of love. All other sacrifices are subordinate to that. And Paul, in fact, is so overwhelmed by this. He's so overwhelmed by the thought that the Son of God would leave glory, that the creator of the universe would become a squealing infant. He can't get his head around it. He can't quantify it. He's, he's, he's trying to get some kind of grasp on, on how, do I, how does he measure this. And he, he can't because he says it. So we go in all directions. You, you can't imagine anything bigger than this. You can't imagine anything wider or, or deeper or higher. It's beyond our comprehension. It surpasses our knowledge. Even our, we can't even imagine the bread to the love of God. Which is why we need power. See, to know the love of God is a supernatural experience. Paul writes in Romans 5, he says, And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. It's a gift. To know God's love is a gift. Uh, And it's something we can ask for. And it's not an intellectual knowledge that we're talking about here. It's not something we can deduce or or reach a, through a formula you know we can't say well it says you know god so loved the world i'm living the world therefore god must love me it's not like that no this is a this is an experiential love it's love which is felt love which overwhelms and causes our hearts to feel like they might burst the American evangelist, R.A. Torrey, I think worked with Moody, once when reading the scriptures and praying, became so overwhelmed by a profound just experience of God's love for him that he began to weep and weep and weep. Eventually, he asked God to show him no more of his love because he couldn't bear it. It was overwhelming. I think think for us, there's a a danger because we want to avoid emotionalism, uh, because we want to avoid kind of getting getting caught up in what maybe would be considered a little bit sensational. uh, We often reduce God's love to an intellectual idea. It never gets out of our minds. But what we need to do is we need to take what we know on our heads and, and allow the God's spirit to apply that to our hearts. You know, it'd be like if you're married, it'd be like knowing your spouse loved you and never feeling 
your spouse loved you. Or it's like knowing your parents loved you, but never actually feeling it. It makes life and would make things difficult. Because you see, it's, it's the continual experiential love of God which will hold us fast through our life, whatever life throws at us. You are not sustained by your love for God. You are sustained by his love for you. Sometimes, and I don't know if this is you this morning, but sometimes it can feel like we are hanging on to God by the tips of our fingers. It's like we're on a cliff edge and we're hanging on for grim depth and we think we have to hold so tight and so desperately because we're, we're, you know, if we let go, we think that's us. That's it. We're going to fall. We're doomed. That's not the picture of the Bible. The Bible says God holds us. We don't hold God. We can try, but actually, ultimately, in the gospel, it is God's love which holds us fast. It's God's love which holds us secure. And Paul's prayer is that we would know that and feel that. So having prayed for these two massive objectives, Paul comes to his one goal. And that is the fullness of of God he says that you may be filled with all the fullness of God and when Paul talks about the fullness of God this is this is his language for becoming mature as a Christian and the amazing thing is the mature believer is is not the one who has the best bible knowledge or the best doctrine or the best theology although these are important but we need to remember that satan has excellent Bible knowledge and really good theology. No, the mature believer is the one who, when he or she reads the scriptures and thinks about God and thinks about the love of God and the love of Christ, their, their heart sings. Their emotions are stirred. Satan's heart doesn't sing when he contemplates the love of God. It repulses him. But the mature believer is moved by this. The mature believer's life is, is transformed by, by knowing the love of God. It's, it's the key weapon in our, in our battle against sin. Sin is a love problem. Sin is when we, we love something else better than we love God. It ends up because we have ultimately we've got wrong motivations. Our desires are out of sync with what they should be. And it's desperately difficult to overcome our sinful desires by just sheer willpower. We can try, but we're probably going to fail. Instead, what we need to do is we need to replace our, our inadequate desires with a better desire for something, for something greater. Perhaps shared this before. I can't remember if I have here or not, but I have a. I'm quite lucky in work because we have an unending supply of biscuits um, in our staff room. Every break time you go in, the plates have all been re re replenished every day, and they're free. It's great, and I really like McVitie's digestives. Uh, even better if it's chocolate digestives. 
But I've kind of reached a stage in life where I have to be a little bit more careful with what I put in. Uh, when I was younger, I could eat anything I liked and it didn't have any impact on my body. And now it causes, an ex causes expansion to occur. Uh, so when I'm presented with this plate of biscuits, and I really like them, I'm, I want them. I have a desire for these biscuits. But then I have to think in my head, right, in the cupboard at home, I, have a, I know there's a packet of the finest crisps in the world, which is Co-op's Sea Salt and Chardonnay Wine Vinegar Crisps. Uh, so I now have two competing desires. And that's what it's like. So in order to overcome one desire, I replace it with a desire for something greater. And the crisps are better than the digestives. But that's what it's like for us. If we, if we know the love of God, then that becomes, and if we've experienced the love of God, then that becomes our greater desire in the battle against sin. And suddenly, it's not about willpower, it's about just more desire for something better. And in life, it should make things a little bit easier, but the battle of never stops. And therefore, we need this power in our lives all the time, constantly renewing us, constantly transforming us into who God wants us to be. Paul finishes his prayer with a beautiful little doxology uh, right at the end. He says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Paul has just prayed for spiritual blessings of extraordinary value including the request to know the surpassing love of Christ and to be filled with all the fullness of God. That is massive. That's huge. And we have to, can you think, has, he, has Paul gone over the top here? Has he maybe overreached himself in his prayer? Has he gone too far? And verse 20 is a, an emphatic no. See, Paul's saying we come before a God whose ability to act is not limited by any human request or any human intellectual capacity. He says in uh, 1, 19 and 20 that this power which transforms our lives and reveals his love to us, that's the same power which raised Christ from the dead. And that's available to you and to me. That's resurrection power available to us now and so sometimes we we approach God a little bit like Oliver Twist if you ever know the Dickens story I once played Mr Bumble in a school musical production but we're like Oliver you know we're approaching God with our wee bowl and we're like please God can I have some more porridge you know, we almost expect the same answer from God that Oliver got from Mr. Bumble. You know, the, what, more? You know, haven't I done enough for you? you know, didn't I do enough when I sent my son to die for you? But that's not God's response to us. 
God's, God's response is more like, why do you ask for so little? There's a banquet prepared for us. There's an abundant supply of power for us. All we have to do is ask and expect to receive. And Paul finishes his doxology with this, with the ultimate aim of everything, the glory of God. Our transformation, our increasing in our knowledge of God's love, it's not so that we can look better to the outside world. It's not so that we can appear smarter or it's not like folks can look at us and think, oh, those Christians, they've got it all together. It's not the point. It's not about us looking good. It's about God looking great. It's so that his power is magnified and made known. It's so that Jesus is lifted up and worshipped here in Deniston or in East Kilbride because what we, what we want people to see is us, the church, and they want them to look at us and say, goodness, if God can transform those guys, then he can, he can transform me. That's what it's about. He can transform anyone. So this week, I'm encouraging you, pray this prayer. Pray it for yourself, for your family, for your children, for your church. Because God's answer to this prayer is definitely yes. Let me pray for us. Father, we come before you as the one who is abundantly able uh, to give us immeasurably good things. Father, we thank you for your blessings upon us, Lord. Would you help us to know your love? you help us to be transformed by it uh, as we think about you and we contemplate you as we respond in jesus name amen